Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. sit down and listen up. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what they tell me, Nikki. Shut up and draw, Anderson. Shut up and draw. <laughs> that's the beginning of the latest edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. We're joined in the studio live and in person. Storyboard artist to all the big stars, the Coen brothers for 20 years and counting. And uh, of late, George Clooney as well for the new one. It is J. Todd Anderson. Welcome. Hello, Nikki Dakota. Thanks so much for being here. Also, extra It's always live. my pleasure. You know that. <laughs> Extra live and in person, the Nitrate Film Archivist for the Library of Congress. It is the one and only George Williman. George. Fish. <laughs> and he's extra live. <laughs> and that is actually the answer to one of my favorite jokes, which is how many surrealists does it take to put in a light bulb? <laughs> I'm writing that down. We are gathered here today to celebrate yet the latest in a uninterrupted stream of perfect movies, according to the film guys. And uh, indeed, today it is 19... What's the year on this? 1970. 1970 classic, Little I, Big I, Man. A lot of people are saying, why do you do so many old movies? Well, it takes a while to get to be perfect. You know, it's, it's uh, like a great bottle of wine. We haven't got too many modern movies on there. There are a few, but we do generally work on movies that has sustained you know you know that just that brings me to a thought shouldn't we do our rules right now there's more to it than meets the eye there are very very specific requirements that must be met and they are this movie little big man creates the world it exists in and then it wholly sustains that world and regardless of changes in society it retains its meaning and entertainment value and we will never, and you can write this down, we will never put it in any sort of a numerical listing. Each movie in competition with itself. Fair I, to say? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So, uh, Perfect in its own scale. With that, with that perspective, with these parameters set, uh, we bring our attention to the 1970 classic Little Big Man, starring Dustin Hoffman. But that's not all. There's an interesting cast of characters that weaves throughout, but certainly following the path of this young... What shall we call him? Character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Young uh, American. you may be watching this movie and say, this sort of feels like uh, The Graduate. Um, <laughs> see, I do it just like you do when you're thinking. This, I bet this, this is like The Graduate. I mean, is it because of Dustin Hoffman? No, it's because... Well, it's because the script was written by Calder Willingham, who also wrote the screenplay for The Graduate. And it's based on a novel by Thomas Berger. And this was, it follows The Graduate. So The Graduate was first. Yeah. Dustin and, and the screenwriter worked together then and then now. This is some smart writing, man. When you watch it, it is snappy and it is smart. This is one of the one of the better screenplays to come out of that era. Well, and in watching this film uh, just recently and thinking about the sort of 
political correctness mania that has kind of taken over our world these days, I realize there are many things in this film that would never get a pass today if they tried to do this film now in some of the ways that Jack talks about uh, certain Indian tribes and other people and just the treatment of, of people in the movie. But the treatment of the people in the movie is not... I mean, it, it's fairly accurate, I think, to the way things happened back then. It's rough. I mean, the life was rough that he is sort of thrown into in this movie. This is this is uh, one of the more visceral depictions of uh, American history for the cinema. Uh, and before this movie, I don't think anybody went to this extreme to show you the violence and uh, some of it's caricature. There's no doubt about it, and it is funny. But there's some lot of there's a lot of uh, emphatic truth in this movie that that goes back to American history, and it just he just tells it in a very postmodern way. When you say George. Oh, yeah, definitely. This is, I, I like to refer to it as the, um, this is like the anti-John Ford film. Uh, you know, John Ford kind of set the pace of the Western for so many years, and the, you know, the cavalry were always the heroes, and the Indians were always the villains. And in this one, the cavalry are awful. They're, they're oh, yeah. murderers, and their leader is, is an idiot. As you we know. find out right. in full remember, force Remember the in end. The Searchers, we said that there was a little bit of indicator uh, that the soldiers were kind of the idiot gatekeepers of the West. Well, this is that idea pretty much uh, painted into fruition here, that they really are the idiot gatekeepers of, of what they're opening up. I and mean, he, that's the depiction in this movie, don't you? Don't oh, you think yeah. they're George? And especially when it comes to the leadership of, uh, you know, George Armstrong Custer, <laughs> who is just wonderfully played by Richard Mulligan. From, from Soap. Who was yeah. in Soap and also is in one of my favorite movies, uh, Blake Edwards' S.O.B. S.O.B. The, the uh. movie director. Yeah, he's great. But he plays this incredibly pompous and fairly moronic uh, George Armstrong Custer, who, of course, leads his forces into this, this just terrible defeat at Little Bighorn, which is the main set piece of the film. It goes down burning, but we'll get to that later. The okay. writer uses a brilliant device in he in the in the person of this little boy who is a part of a pioneer train basically that is ambushed and burned and then he's taken in by the Indians. And then right. in another course though, he's basically taken back into the white world and then taken back into it's it's just amazing it's such a brilliant way to do it. It's kind of an interesting way of showing both sides of the story and allowing you to sort of take part in it as, as this character and watching Jack as he flips from, you know, as he says, from his religious period to his <laughs> drunkard period to his gunfighter period, you know, and every little thing goes on and what takes him in and out of these different modes of his life and how amazingly he ends up, you know, he's just sort of, we were talking about Slaughterhouse-Five, it's almost kind of like that, in like, like Billy Pilgrim, he just keeps jumping back and forth, being thrown into these different worlds. And also, you'll kind of be reminded of Forrest Gump, in this, you know, yes. how, how they move through yeah. Forrest Gump and he takes on this, you know, personification all the way through it. Because um, I remember when we were doing, uh, what movie was it we were doing? Uh, but anyway, we kept referring, the Coens, they kept referring to Cat Baloo, you know, this, the way the story <laughs> was told. Because um, we were, we always really liked that movie. And it, it was one of those movies you, it reminds you of other movies but this movie I, I was watching it again I've seen it quite a few times I thought it has a little bit of well Forrest Gump has this feel because uh -huh. I don't know if they had anything to do with the influence but that's so movies kind of influence each other through the period of time and I think that this this one has that there's a lot going on here but I wonder George if you could give us sort of just a, a basic <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> to put you on the spot because there is a lot going on kind of just a basic you know yeah, um, path this is yeah, it um, and it starts out with with um, 
a historian interviewing Jack Crabb, who is who claims to be the last white survivor of the Little Bighorn, and he's like 112 years old, living in a home, otherwise known as Custer's Last Custer's Stand. Last Stand. And or as you heard him say, popularly referred to as Custer's Last Stand. <laughs> and and how old is he, again, uh, he's how supposed old? to be 112. Yeah. Okay. And and the historian who interestingly is uh, is played by William Hickey, who's not so well known, but he was a really great. He was actually a teacher of theater. Princey's Honor. He's in Princey's Honor. I want a cookie, you know. And he's just, and he's also <laughs> in uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, where he gets oh. his hair set on fire and stuff like that. But uh, he's he's passed on. But he, he became quite a popular character actor in his last years because of this wonderful uh, visage that he had. But um, he gets. Jack to start telling the story of his life and he wants to know about the ways of the Indians and that kind of thing and so the film flashes back to show how Jack and his sister were the only survivors of this wagon train that was massacred they're taken in by the Indians and as he grows up with the Indians and especially under the influence of of uh, one of the chiefs old lodge skins who is just wonderfully portrayed by Chief Dan George, who is just one of the all one of my all-time favorite actors Indian or not he's really really wonderful and uh, and suddenly he gets he gets thrown out of this world and back into the white world uh, where he is is basically given over to a, uh, a, a I think he's a minister and his wife and Pim the wife Brooke is played yeah, yeah. and the wife is played by Faye Dunaway and she's just so, loses a goose but she keeps a stiff upper lip <laughs> and that's the beginning of his religious period until uh, until he sees her in the basement with the grocer. Um, you know, she's paying her bill basically to put it politely, <laughs> and uh, that's the end of his religious period. And in that scene, it's really great. What is it, George? They can't watch the the wrongful act, so their their eye line is always staring oh, at something. It looks it's screen. very disturbing when you watch her giving him a bath because it, it's almost as as if they're blind because their eye line is they can't watch. You know, they can't encounter sin yeah it's like very the, funny scene the first thing she's keen to do is bathe him and that yeah, yeah. And it's very very strange <laughs> so he's he's getting several innocences stripped at, at virtually every uh, turn in this but right he, so he his life progresses he at one point he becomes his businessman and it turns out that his uh his business partner is incredibly crooked and and uh and leaves him and his his new wife just flat busted. And this is the first time they meet Custer, who basically looks at these two dejected people and says, "That's the most pathetic thing I've ever seen." <laughs> and uh, and then they they head out. He tells them to head west. And there's an immediate cut to a wagon train being attacked by Indians. And <laughs> he he gets he gets loose, but his wife gets captured by the Indians. And you know. And, it just goes on and on. He becomes, and he always plays that trump card. I'm a white guy, you know. Just before yeah. they kill him, you know. He, he, started, he one time he's like, "God bless George Washington," and trying to save himself. And that's right. And know. he's going, and you know, the guy's getting ready, the soldier getting ready to kill him. And he goes, he says, he says, "I'm white. I'm a white guy." Didn't you hear me saying, "God bless George Washington. God bless my mother." Now, what kind of an Indian would say a fool thing like that? You know. But he manages to survive through all these different things, and and he eventually ends up as a. Um, as a mule skinner for Custer. But um, he soon discovers that, that Custer has a real dark side to him, that his, he's out there, he's just, you know, he's going to wipe, wipe out the Indians, basically. He does the reverse psychology on him. Yeah, Here. reverse, reverse psychology. <laughs> that seems pretty funny. The, um, he eventually ends up, at one of the battles that he's involved in with Custer, he finds a, a young Indian girl in the bushes giving birth, and he ends up, 
killing one of his Indian comrades from earlier days who was trying to protect this girl who's his daughter. And um, he takes the girl back with her new child and is reunited with his grandfather, Old Lodge Tien's, which, you know, and, and he basically become, goes back to being an Indian again. And then here comes Custer. Custer destroys their village, kills everybody in it pretty much. Is that now, where he's invisible? Is that the scene? No. Where, oh, that's not the invisible. Uh, yeah. Oh, no. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. That's a fabulous scene where the chief, is. he says he's invisible and he walks through the gunshots. And, yeah, uh, because the, the grandfather has, has been blinded in a, in a previous battle uh, and will not leave because of his blindness. And, and um, he has these dreams throughout the film. The grandfather has dreams that all seem to have a way of coming true. And Jack convinces him that because he didn't see the soldiers in his dream, that means that they can't see him and that he's invisible. And that just tickles the grandfather to no end. And sure enough, they walk through this huge battle to the river without anyone even slowing them down or stopping them. But then Jack runs back because he realizes his wife is still there and sees just in time to see a um, one of the soldiers gun her down and kill her two children. This is all done to gallant music and uh it's a, it's a pretty ironic movie. When you you got to think about it when it came out, too, in 1970. There's a scene where he takes care of all his wife's sisters in the teepee, you know, because – and he's really apprehensive to do this because they're all women. He's supposed to be uh, – his his deal is marriage with one woman. And she says, what, you don't like my sisters? And I remember <laughs> I saw this when I was in high school. They showed it, and they, they put a hand over the yeah. – so they couldn't see him with all these Indian women. And then the terrible part is you get a good laugh out of this. It's really funny. And then the soldiers write in. It's just the way this movie is cut. It goes back and forth. Back it's, and I forth. think it's brilliant just to, to get both sides told. I, I think a lot of it does. Uh, if you look at the time it was made, 1970, uh, we were very heavily involved in Vietnam. And there's a lot of that sort of anti-military in there, especially in the character of Custer. You know, who's just sort of, he knows he's right, and he's always berating, how dare you, you know, uh, cast aspersions on a Custer command, you know, that kind of thing. And just on the heels of the Civil Rights Movement, and what's beautiful about this uh, that I particularly enjoyed is that he points out when he's with his Indian family that they call themselves the human beings. Human mm-hmm. beings. The human beings yeah, do human this. Beings. The human beings do that. Very, very interesting, very insightful. Now, I said something about the cutting on this, and I would like to say something about the editor, and it's uh, Dee Dee Allen. And this woman is a legend. Uh, I was—I had the good fortune of working with her on Adam's Family. And just recently, I didn't get to see her, but I worked on this movie that uh, uh director did out there called West Texas Children's Story, which will be coming out. And Dee Dee cut this. And her list of movies is just to die for. She's done The Wonder Boys. She did Henry and June, um, The Breakfast Club, uh, Harry and Son, Reds, The Wiz, Slapshot. This is wow. Dee Dee Allen, man. I'm telling you, this woman is something else. Day After Tomorrow, Serpico, Visions of Eight, Slaughterhouse Five, uh, Little Big Man, of uh, course, was one of her early ones. Bonnie and Clyde. Worked with uh, Ar- Arthur, Penn. Arthur Penn quite a bit. Uh, people don't realize how much influence an editor has over a picture. And it's her fingerprints are all over this movie. The style, the cutting uh, from one, like we said before, he goes from one side to the other quite a bit. That's done through picture cutting. Uh, and his, you know, Dustin Hoffman has a very strong character, but it's done through the technique of Dee Dee Allen's deft hand. And she cut most of this stuff on film. She, I think she cuts uh, digital now. And she's... Uh, yeah, 1970, it would have definitely been all on uh, a Tell him how that's done, earlier. George. 
well, gee. No. Uh, at this time, they would have used machines, uh, either a machine often just referred to as a Steenbeck or a flatbed editor where the, the films lay flat on the machine and run through sideways uh, and are projected on a ground glass. Or they would use, if they're really old-timers, they might still be using an upright moviola. I think probably Bonnie and Clyde in that era when she was cutting was she was on an upright. I'm not sure. Um, uh. But at any rate, it's extremely strenuous and physical task, especially if you're working on a sound film, because every time you cut the picture, you have oh, to cut the soundtrack sure. to match it. Right. And they're always separate, and they're always just long spools of film that, uh, as I know from experience, having cut some 60-millimeter films, the machines will suddenly go renegade on you and just destroy your soundtrack. And then you got to start all over again. Well, back when the uh, when the guys were cutting Fargo, they were doing it in a small room, and and they would have to go and get the reel, and they bring it in, and then they string it up on this four gang thing, and they find the scene, the big scene they run, and they cut it out of there, and they had to mark all this stuff, and then hang it up, and then they would insert it into the flatbed, and they did this on Fargo. Um, those guys they cut on film for quite a while. Uh, it just doesn't happen anymore. But that's the way it was done for years and years and years. And and this stuff is not lightweight. You just don't toss it through cyberspace. You have to get a, a couple people have to go and get it, you know. Well, and it gets even harder when you're talking, again, talking about sound films. Uh, with the soundtrack, you have it. The more separation you can get on the different sounds, the better off you are because then you have more latitude in editing. So let's say you have a scene where three people are talking and they're outside. Suddenly you have three dialogue tracks plus music, maybe two music tracks, plus every sound effect has its own track. So if you have cars going by and then birds in the trees and then crickets and then children playing, each one of those is a separate track. And it can just it grows monumentally. When um, Apocalypse Now came out, the famous uh, helicopter attack on the... Uh, on the village had like 120 separate soundtracks to mix together to make that final track. And a lot That's of stuff, a lot of stuff on the table there. Oh my goodness. So it's like the fine art. It's like being an air traffic controller, but for, for vision and sound right. and, and at physical that, stuff. And at that time to create those soundtracks, each track had to match each, every other track. They all had to be the same length. So if you have a roll of film, that's a thousand feet long, you end up with 120, thousand foot long rolls of soundtrack that all have to be mixed together and they might do it in batches but you know that's a lot of it's stuff. a veritable miracle we have movies at all in post <laughs> they used to have these big vertical full coat machines standing like soldiers in a room there's maybe i don't know how many like 50 of them george uh, i think the one time we mixed the, the place we went had like 20 or so yeah and when i got when i did Naked Man 10 years ago, they were just moving that stuff out and replacing it with more modern machines. But this, getting back to Little Big Man, that is how technical, when you watch this thing, it's astounding what Didi assembled. You know, I'm not taking credit away from anybody else because it certainly was a collaborative movie, but very th a good editor is invisible because <laughs> it, it never a good editor never calls attention to themselves because they're so skillful in pushing that story for, for they save movies with editing you know skillful editors will i mean where the where the director is is sort of putting the story on film the the editor is adding the punctuation and paragraph divides and uh -huh. chapter stops and that kind of thing nice but put, yeah and to segue yeah. uh the director of this film arthur penn uh, who's still out there although he's he's I guess he's sort of semi-retired now because he hasn't hasn't done anything recently. Uh, was one of the real shining lights of this time. He had started in television, Playhouse 90, with the likes of like John Frankenheimer, and uh, and really hit his stride by making a film version of one of his TV plays, uh, The Miracle Worker. 
the Helen Keller story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, very quickly uh, going up from there, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, I think, was his big breakthrough film. He was really called to task on that for the violence in that. I remember there was a lot of controversy about the violence in Bonnie and Clyde. And he was one of the people I remember reading about how he was criticizing the cameras, the Mitchell cameras, the big American cameras, when they had really sophisticated air flexes. He said, look, we haven't changed our camera in years. And he was calling attention to the fact that technology – was our you know our American cinema technology was not moving as fast as say an Aeroflex camera you know which you could see through the lens. Uh huh. He's also a quite an uh, became quite an iconoclastic director, sort of destroying some of the the old standbys of of American mythology and stuff. I mean, you know, Bonnie and Clyde is, is a film that twenty years earlier could not have been made. Because Bonnie and Clyde are the heroes, and they're the villains. Right, and that wasn't allowed, was it? That was no. like literally not allowed by the. Uh, and, and even in, in Little Big Man, showing the, yep. the the American U.S. Army as as you know morons basically, <laughs> and and sort of breaking some of the tree. You know, the the Indians, the Indians always being you know portrayed previously as very you know sort of noble and stiff and staid, and in this one, you know, Lodgkins is old Lodgkins is always talking about sex basically. Every time he gets <laughs> together with his grandson, he's talking about. You know, this and that and the other. He even makes mention of one of his wives. Uh, he says, well, you know, her kind copulates with horses. But oh. I know she doesn't like horses, so I call her doesn't like horses. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so, so and Penn you know, really like doing this sort of, you know, turning these, these conventions on their heads and, and you know, yeah, make, I don't, making I don't recall of any movie before this where Custer was such a buffoon. I mean, they really – really I mean, you'd always seeing. read about Custer being kind of weird and stupid and kind of weird. But they never, ever turned him into this cartoon character that he turned him. When you say it's, he's it's a cartoon It's worth seeing character. for that final scene virtually alone. Um, we're talking about Little Big Man on Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. And I, I they, it definitely creates the world that it, it uh, that it uh, dwells in. It just sustains that world without question. And I would like to hear your thoughts on how that, uh, despite cultural changes, that it uh, it sustains its uh, entertainment value uh, to this day. Well, I think first of all, uh, Dustin Hoffman is uh, proves again in this one what why he's such a great actor because he can take on this character and not only play him from I mean he plays him basically from like the age of twenty to one hundred and twelve. Yeah. And 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 I think things haven't really changed that much. There are still prejudices against against the American Indians. There are still perceptions and and and, and even now in our current situation there are. There are those who, who kind of feel that the, the American military is, is horribly misguided. Yeah. Well, it's also an absolute lethal reference to uh, the awareness of history. If you watch this movie, you're going to get a little curious. You, know, and you may go back there and start investigating for yourself. Was all this true? Because it, it, it's, it's a pretty dangerous movie to watch if uh, you're not aware of some of this. It will get you curious. Uh, so it still sustains itself in that respect for uh, – I think awareness levels. Yeah, and also right. it does bring up it brings up things about about the American Indians that hadn't really been brought forward that the the society that they had created, and the fact that uh, there's a character in Little Horse, who is is somewhat of a, a more feminine kind of a feminine yeah. Indian, and there really was and and they were highly respected and if they wanted to stay with women and they didn't want to go to war. That was the way it was. That was fine. There were also the backwards people, you know, who, who were contraries and who That's did things backwards. Scene, yeah. The guy but backs into the river. He backs into the river and, and says hello, you know, but th- that was real. That really <laughs> happened, you know. And, they, and you know, so often the Indians are, are a mystery 
to to those of us of a more more Western society bent, I guess. That's right. I'm glad you pointed out that little part about uh, that he would rather stay with women, and that was fine. If you had a certain leaning to a certain direction, uh, that was just absolutely well, there's a allowed. Lot of, a lot of stuff in Indian culture, American Indian culture, that never gets addressed. And up to this movie, nobody even really... I mean, it's always the same kind of Indians depicted in movies. <laughs> always the same. Very little... You had very little knowledge of what was going on in their society, and this movie goes into it. You know, uh, there's a really good movie called Smoke Signals, done by an American Indian. It's a really great movie, um, but it's not quite like this. But it, again, we're we're interested in how they live and how they do their. And Indians did things totally differently. American Indians, and that's something that you're not aware of. And all of a sudden, you're aware. Certainly not in this by movie. the the main large massive uh, movie evidence. You wouldn't mm-hmm. you wouldn't get a glimpse into that. Well, even you know this coming out in 1970, and even prior to that, still in like the John Ford era you know, Indians were often well like in the searchers as great a movie as the searchers is the the main Indian characters played by a white actor yeah and this one the Indian characters are for the most part as far as I know played by Indian actors and Chief Dan George made a point in his career that he would never play a villainous Indian he only played uh, a, you know a noble part or a good part this is probably his best best movie don't yeah. you think he, chief dan george this is probably his best it kind of well of right work. in this period shortly after this he also played a similar character in outlaw josie wales uh in which he's also very good and very similar to this one too there was another uh indian actor at that time is iron eyes cody mm-hmm. uh, it was him and chief Jan, dan george were the uh, you saw them quite a bit in movies uh, at this time i also want to say something before we get out of here is uh uh, in the beginning, you see him, and he's 112 years old. This is one of the, as I know and understand, this is one of the first extensive uses of latex, you know, latex to get people to look old. Before then, did, it was they had real antiquated methods of makeup to get people old. Right, it was like really kind of drawing hard. Drawing on people right, drawing instead of spirit gum and things like that. But yeah. it, it really is good. I mean, honestly, and think that this was one of the earliest uses, and it's so good. And there used to be a promo for this movie, and they'd show him them applying it you know which is they put straws up his nose and paint you know very much like uh right, paint all the liver spots on him yeah and and wait till the latex dried and they made a mold and they showed you all this and then they showed him peeling it off and he's in the makeup chair for quite a while it's very uncomfortable but it's far more uh preferable than what they used to do with like in the wizard of oz and those people had got skin diseases yeah. from all right. the paint Buddy the, the, the lead-based paint it. yeah yeah and, and Dick Smith was the artist who did this, and he, of course, went on to many other uh, – he became sort of the, the latex artist of the 70s and 80s. And, and Dustin Hoffman himself, being the, the consummate actor he was, to get that wonderful, scratchy, rough voice that he has as the older Jack Crabb, locked himself in a room and screamed for an hour to just, just raw – to make his throat raw – to do that, to do that voice. It's really good. It's and one voice of the best comes I've ever in throughout seen. the movie, and it's a definite character difference. You can tell that they're going into him as an old man talking. We've been talking about Little Big Man on Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. I'm Nikki Dakota. The film guys are the legendary J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure, Nikki Dakota. And the legendary plus one, it is George Williman. Thanks so much. Yes, and hang by your thumbs. Thank you. <laughs> We've got, uh, what are we looking forward to next week? Uh, next week's going to be a surprise. Okay, I love those. Love those indeed. And Thanks from all of us here at 91.3 WYSO. Check the website. It's perfectmovie.net. 
can always drop us a line. The Film Guys are eager to hear from you. It is filmguys at perfectmovie.net. Or, of course, stop by the YSO website, ready for you. A link right there on the front page, wyso.org. Hey, thanks for listening. What you got, George? I got one more. A big thank you to uh, Jeff Fisher at the U.S. Air Force Museum for uh, promoting this film and getting us to do it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.